Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Definitely a huge turning point is industrialization and like uh, modern life in the 1920s. So at least two things happen. One thing that happens is that you have much more of a food supply. So you have much more caloric food. And so whereas before being able to show with your body, you had access to that kind of caloric food and to leisure to like lie around, right? And not do physical labor. That was considered attractive, right? You were a fat cat. There were actually fat men's clubs that were kind of where the high rollers would hang out um, and kind of celebrate this because it was a mark, as we, as I said, of affluence. Um, another, so that is like really important. And actually, if you listen to like a guy like Jack Lane talk about, um, you know, his transformation, very different from a lot of fitness stars today who talk about like I was obese and then I lost all this weight and now look at me, I'm ripped. He's part of this earlier generation. They're all like I was a scrawny and sickly child and then I was able to like build mass and put on weight. They're not talking about getting fat, of course. But I think it goes to show you that in that earlier period, being skinny was like really, really undesirable and really showed like an impoverished, an impoverished context. Hi, my name is Pete McCall, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the All About Fitness podcast. That voice you just heard is the guest for this episode, Dr. Natalia Petrozella. And I cannot tell you how stoked I am for this conversation. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, Dr. Petrozella has been on the has been on the show a number of times. In fact, I jokingly referred to her as the podcast historian. Dr. Petrozella is a professor of history at the New School in Manhattan in New York City. She she writes not just about American history, but about the history of the fitness industry. And that's what her book, Fit Nation, The Gains and Pains of America's Exercise Obsession, is about. She she took a look back at the history of fitness in America. And, and really, this is a history of fitness in, in American pop culture, not just a history of exercise. If you listen to All About Fitness, yes, I'm a big fan of exercise science. Yes, I try to help you understand how exercise changes the body. But in reality, folks, 
I'm a history geek. I love history. And I really love the history of the fitness industry. How do we get here? How do we, why are we sweating the way we do? Why do we do HIIT workouts? Why do we do yoga? What creates, what influences us, right? If you heard me recently have a conversation with Rick Ritchie, Rick, who is a 2020, uh, 2021 personal trainer of the year, we're talking about trends. Sorry, 2022 personal trainer of the year. I think about the year. But we're talking about trends. And what he said, our principles remain the same, but trends change how we do fitness. And that's what Dr. Petrozella writes about. Dr. Petrozella writes about how trends have changed over the years, how we, how fitness, how we do fitness has changed. I, I think about in my 25 yet, you know, this year marks my 25 years, my, or this year marks 25 years of being in the fitness industry. And I've seen a tremendous amount of change. I started going to gyms in 1990. Anyway, all that to say, a fabulous conversation today. Fascinating for me. I'm a history geek. We talk about the history of the fitness industry. And more importantly, we talk about what that means for you. Why are you sweating the way you do today? Why do you work out the way you do? And and the thing is, and I don't know if we answered this question, but this question comes up. Does, Does exercise change or does our relationship with exercise change as we get older? And think about that. Does, does how we do exercise change or does our relationship change as we get older? Hey, think about that. Here we are with Dr. Petrozella, author of Fit Nation, talking about the history of fitness in American culture. You're running all over the place, Doc. How are you doing today? And it's really good to see you and really good to catch up. Oh, I'm so excited for this conversation. I know, like New York, Boston, I just booked a couple of California trips, so feel lucky to be on the move. Well, the good news is we finally got our sunshine back out here in, in California. We had a couple of weeks. It's been, we. that's the thing with California living, Doc. It's like you miss the sun, you love the sun. When the sun goes away, cognitively, I know we need the rain. But when you don't see sun for a few days, it, it does affect you. Well, how how's everything going with Fit Nation? Because you've been on the show. I think you've been on the, the the podcast now. This is probably your fifth appearance. And over the years, we've had an ongoing conversation of, about your book. And congratulations. It is out. People can buy Fit Nation. <laughs> what was it? What what prompted you, Doc, to, to, to write? First of all, what is Fit Nation and what was the motivation to write it? Yes. Well, what I'm so glad to be back. I feel like we've been having these conversations for years and they've helped shape this book and my thinking. So I really appreciate you and this podcast and the opportunity. Um, okay. So Fit Nation, I, I, it is, I almost put a question mark at the end of that in the title of the book, because of course we're not a fit nation by most standards of physical health. And so the thing that I set out to understand with this book is how did we become a country and a culture where Fitness is everywhere. Like you're constantly being told, go exercise or you should exercise or buy this product or buy these cute leggings to work out in. But we don't do it as a culture as a whole. Something like 80% of Americans don't even get the recommended daily amount of exercise. And so I wanted to figure out how that happened. How do we go to a place where we embrace exercise, no matter your politics for the most part, as good for you, but we don't make access to it a right. It's really a privilege to be able to buy what we've made a consumer product. So I span like 130 years or so from the World's Fair in 1893 all the way to the pandemic in order to figure out how we got here. And yeah, so that's the book, basically. 
Well, and, and see, that's such a fascinating thing. And, and as you mentioned, we, we've talked over the years, and, and I'm not, you're a professor of history, so you, you delve into it in a little bit deeper. And and I, having gone to school for government and, and studied history, I, I certainly am a fan of it and learned how to apply it. So what do you consider yourself, Doc? I mean, obviously, you're a historian, but you're also a fitness enthusiast. So how does one influence the other? How do, how do you, when you look at fitness, how do you, when we, what pops in your mind about historical context and then vice versa? When you start reviewing, look back at our history, what are you searching for in terms of like leisure time, leisure time? Yeah. So for so long, I really kept those parts of my life apart. Like, yeah, I was this like brainy, cerebral person who was going to school. And it kind of like, if you talk to someone who knew me in like third grade and never saw me until today, and you were like, oh, whatever happened to her? They probably would be like, she's a professor. Like that was sort of foreordained. <laughs> um, I always loved books and writing and all that. I was not an athletic kid at all. And so when I actually did find the gym, not sports, in high school as a way to get out of PE, I was like so humiliated. I'm like, let me do an independent study. And I went to step class and I totally fell in love with it. I became this total gym rat. And so it was actually funny. And I got really disconnected for over a decade, like well into my 20s, that I like did everything I could to be able to have access to gyms I couldn't afford. I worked the front desk. I like would do every free pack, you know, every free pass thing to get in. Um, but I was pursuing my career as a scholar and, and, and a student. Um, but then, you know, as I kind of got a little bit older, I realized that the sensibility that I had as a scholar, which is basically like, I walk around the world and I'm like, how did we get here? How did we get here? Why is the world like this? Like, I was asking those same questions at the gym. And I realized that not that many other people were asking those questions, or at least writing about it. And there are a range of reasons why. I think a lot of it is that, honestly, people who pursue the so-called life of the mind as scholars often, like, I don't know almost think they're a little above studying something so like grubby and sweaty and physical as the gym. Um, that's probably a big one. But I was like, I want to understand that. Like, this is actually really important. It's a massive industry. It's a huge part of our culture. It, I knew in my own life, it's both a force for good in a lot of ways and a force for some not so great things. It's very different than sport. We have 9 million books about every athlete you could ever imagine, um, but not this. Why is that? And like, what's going on here? And so that's kind of like what got me to bring these two worlds together. And the first thing I'll say, I mean, the last thing I'll say, and I'll let you ask the question, is that um, the first thing that brought them together, though, wasn't writing this book. It was a social justice civic engagement program that I started at the same institution, the new school where I teach now, where I was teaching at Equinox. Um, and, you know, Equinox has a lot of great things about it, but its accessibility is probably not one of them. It's like a very expensive club. And I was teaching this class I loved so much. To me, it was the best of what fitness had to offer. It was positive affirmations and, you know, strength and just really inclusive to the extent something in a private club can be. And then I was looking at PE curricula at, in New York City schools where I live. And like, you know, it was still sort of the old model, like exercise as punishment, kind of the jocks would participate or be too good for it and other people wouldn't. And I'm like, what if we could bring these things together in a way? And so I started a program that ended up working with like 6,000 kids in New York City that connected my work teaching about education, teaching about health at the new school with my fitness work. And we had all these college students involved and it was great. And so that was like my first indication. Okay, we could like bring these together. I could bring my scholarly sensibilities and my gym rat sensibilities into something that's the, where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And so several years later, we have this book. 
Well, what's interesting is as you're saying that, Doc, I'm kind of thinking of going off script here of what I was thinking about writing, because you really, I think it would be a good question to ask you. And what sort of popped into mind is, okay, what is fitness? Like from, from your perspective, from a historical perspective, because you cover so much of it in your book and you just referenced like PE programs, because really PE, we could, fitness could include PE for the kindergartner in first grade, that five, six-year-old, all the way up to that, you know, to that super executive elite individual who can afford a one-on-one private trainer. Fitness can include mm-hmm. everything in between. So how, after, after reviewing this and looking at, at our country and through this lens, how would you, and I guess where I'm going with fitness, is it a leisure time activity, meaning I do it because I have free time and the ability to do it? Or is it a component of what we should be doing and we cannot mandate it, but we should mandate it? Is it a component of what we should be doing for optimal health? I mean, how would you, how would you fit that in there? Because that's a huge question. It's such a great question the way you frame it too, unsurprisingly. And I think the reason that I could sustain interest in this project for like almost 10 years and that it's 400 pages is because how we define fitness changes over time. And even at any one historical moment, it is not one thing to everybody. But I do try to make some generalizations about how that's changed over time. So for much of the 19th century, you know, people are talking about health. They're not really talking about exercise or fitness and the way that we think about it today. They're talking about fresh air. They're talking about clean and pure foods. There are some religious groups. Like there's a group that adheres to something scholars call muscular uh, Christianity. And those people uh, really are into exercise and they see like hard, disciplined labor as like a sign of the grace of God, right? If you're putting this in, you are like really showing your religious um, commitment. But that's pretty rare. The early part of the 20th century, a lot of the reason that fitness is so kind of looked down upon is because it's seen as narrowly physical. This is not about a life of the mind and the body. It's not about wellness, a world that a word that didn't really exist. People who are into fitness are like weirdos who care way too much about their physical appearance and actually will even engage in what was considered dangerous activities to achieve it. Like you shouldn't be lifting heavy things, certainly if you're not a woman. Um, and also for men, it was really interesting because at that period when fitness, like strength training or calisthenics even were really looked down on, it's a moment when there's actually a ton of enthusiasm for sports like football. And so I'm like, okay, so how does that square? And the reason that people look down so much on fitness was because it was like the physicality without any of the so-called ennobling activities. This doesn't build camaraderie. This doesn't build teamwork. This isn't com- competitive. It's just about your body. So I won't go into that level of detail about every era, but one of the things that I show through this book in which the record really, really bears out is that, you know, um, as we go into the 1930s, for example, and certainly the Cold War, fitness, physical fitness becomes a way to show your patriotism. First in the New Deal, like you should see, I I draw on the work out of this amazing scholar, Rachel Moran, and she talks about how the Civilian Conservation Corps and the New Deal which basically recruited young men to go like work on public works projects outside and all this physical work. The ads look like a Chippendales ad. Like it's like these shirtless dudes with like these axes and stuff. And literally the way they marketed it was like, put some muscle on those bones, be a good American. And it was all about muscle building as a form of patriotism. You see that all over the PE programs in um, the 1950s and sixties. And so in those moments, that work is so important by the government to kind of change the reputation of exercise from being something narrowly physical and therefore kind of sleazy and 
narcissistic to being something civic minded. Then I'll give you two more little examples and then you can hopefully we'll be done with our our whole interview because I have a lot to share on this. But um, then you have like another, I think, really big shift in the 1960s and 70s where one, like therapy culture becomes much more kind of mainstream. And so this idea that you're like, trying to thrive, not just survive. And that exercise is part of that is really, really popular. And then even in a moment that's so politically charged, you both have like people who are very conservative being really into working out because it's all about personal discipline and responsibility and motivation and all that. And then you have people who are really far to the left who are like, what? Like, my health is in my hands. I don't need to listen to some doctor who tells me they understand my body better than I do. Like I can embrace this Eastern spirituality and do yoga. And like, that's really liberating too. And so you have those things kind of come together. Um, and then I would say, you know, certainly the kind of yoga sensibility, enlightenment, wellness, all that the physical activity really takes hold in the 90s, in the early 2000s. And then last thing to get to your point about, is it work? Is it leisure? I think one of the reasons that exercise as an ideal stays so much with us and so many different groups of people kind of like glam onto it and redefine it is because it's both a form of leisure and labor, right? It's both like it's leisure. So you can kind of like show it off and not feel bad about yourself because it's not so indulgent. It's not like, look at this expensive handbag and I'm on this yacht, like throwing back, I don't know, Negronis or something. It's like, fine, look at these $100 leggings, but I'm doing it in pursuit of health. I'm working so hard. And I think as Americans, those things really go together really well, like fitness as a consumer product and a sign of affluence and luxury, but also as, but I'm working really hard. I deserve it. You just touched on something there that, that I really think is so critical for understanding our obsession with fitness and how we frame it. And that is for, for centuries, Doc, wasn't a sign of girth wasn't a sign of extra weight like me having a paunch as as a man as a mid 40 late late 40s early 50s man wasn't that a sign of my well-being or, or sorry of my like my wealth like if i was doing well if i had money if, if i had excess if my fields were fertile then i was carrying a few extra pounds i was thick and i was full figured but now we have this image at what point where where did that shift where we looked we understood that and i know and this kind of goes back to because your first section of the book that you just alluded to is when sweating was strange right because that that for for years even in the context of sports we didn't really have we didn't use exercise for sports people played sports and they got they would that would be a component of health. But it wasn't only until the last 30 years where people would actually exercise to get better at sports. That's been relatively new. So at what point, I guess the question where I'm getting to is at what point do we make that shift culturally where we used to look at at Rubenesque figures, at full figured figures as having some extra weight as being a sign of virtue and good health to now all of a sudden, if I'm a 50 year old male, if I have more than 12% body fat, I'm considered an athema and I, I'm, I'm like not wanted on the dating market. Not that I have any personal experience in that realm right now, but you know <laughs> what I mean? It's just, but you understand what I'm asking here is, is yeah. we, but at some point, at some point we flipped that switch. Did you see it? What, what, what oh, yeah. online was that switch made? Totally. So it's, um, 
kind of gradual. Um, it's kind of gradual, like most things. And we've seen it's not one straight line, right? That one day it changed and, and everything shifted. But definitely a huge turning point is industrialization and like uh, modern life in the 1920s. So at least two things happen. One thing that happens is that you have much more of a food supply. So you have much more caloric food. And so whereas before being able to show with your body, you had access to that kind of caloric mm-hmm. food and to leisure, to like lie around, right? And not do physical labor. That was considered attractive, right? You were a fat cat. There were actually fat men's clubs that were kind of where the high rollers would hang out um, and kind of celebrate this because it was a mark, as we, as I said, of affluence. Um, another, so that is like really important. And actually, if you listen to like a guy like Jack LaLanne talk about, um, you know, his transformation, very different from a lot of fitness stars today who talk about like, I was obese and then I lost all this weight and now look at me, I'm ripped. He's part of this earlier generation. They're all like, I was a scrawny and sickly child. And then I was able to like build mass and put on weight. They're not talking about getting fat, of course, but I think it goes to show you that in that earlier period, being skinny was like really, really undesirable and really showed like an impoverished an impoverished context. So that changes. Um, the other thing that is really interesting too is that kind of in the middle of the 20th century in the 1950s, you start seeing this real ambivalence where the signs of the good life in America are like having an office job for a man, a desk job, having a TV, being able to have frozen dinners, having all of these like labor-saving leisure devices in the suburbs that showed America's superior to, to, you know, the Soviet Union where the women have to work in the fields and all that. However, there's a problem with that. It takes this toll on your body, right? And so that's when JFK starts talking about the soft American and the fact that, you know, if you want to be a good American and be fit to fight and even like be a good like physical representative of our country, you've got to exercise and you've got to lose that fat. And so that starts to shift, but it's so interesting because none of these shifts happen overnight. And so it's really awkward because for men in particular who had always been told like, you shouldn't worry about losing weight. You definitely like, it's not manly to worry about cutting calories and all of that. You see this diet advice and exercise advice for men, but written about in women's magazines. And so it's literally like, you know, everyone needs to watch their weight these days, especially if Mr. The Mr. is at the office all day, but you don't want him to be cutting the fat off of his own steak. So in the kitchen, prepare it leanly so he doesn't know and then serve it to him. Like plan for a walk around the neighborhood. Don't call it exercise. And so the whole idea is it's unmanly to worry about caring for your body, but you got to care about it because you're sitting around all day and you're eating all this bad food, but it's a woman's job to care about such things. And like that is everywhere, much more recently than we might think. Into the 70s, into the 80s, like I quote this one article in the book, this guy is like, um, I have a new, you know, I am on a new chapter in life. It involves diet, exercise, and I think skincare. That doesn't make me any less of a man. And it's like, oh, you go to the gym? Why would we think you were less of a man? Because today it's kind of normative. So that's sort of like part of that shift that happens. Well, and, and on that note, because you and I had a conversation a few years ago, you wrote a piece, I forget who you wrote the piece for, but I really like it because what what, what a lot of people fail to realize, what a lot of people don't realize is, is, is the roots of the modern health club industry, right? The roots, roots of the modern health club. So how do we get it? And what's interesting to me, Doc, is I remember as little as 30 years ago, 30 years ago to me, isn't that long ago. That's when <laughs> I got out of college. I just got out of college. I was in Washington, D.C., so it was 1994, 
And there were maybe there's a YMCA and there are two other commercial health clubs within a, a radius in downtown DC. Now there were maybe a couple of corporate facilities, but there was a lack of health clubs in downtown DC. And and really when you now we have we have health clubs, we have studios almost everywhere, but but commercial health clubs weren't a thing until the 1970s and 1980s. So what did people do and, and who did exercise? Who were the first like gym enthusiasts and who, where, where were the first health clubs and who did they cater to? Because to me, this is a fascinating component of a couple different facets of our history that often I think just gets overlooked, especially now yeah. in the modern influencer culture. Oh, totally. So I'm so glad you asked that. And so I think it is all too easy sometimes for people to overlook the roots of the modern gym industry in gay culture. Like it was gay men who were going to the early gyms, who were using them as really important sites for socializing when they were excluded from so many other places. And it's so funny, actually, like there's some gyms to, and let me just like stay in the past for a, for a moment, but like they're so connected to the nightclub industry too. So I write about um, John John Blair, who was a nightclub promoter and a gym founder. And he literally would have like interchangeable guest lists. And that whole idea of like, you know, something that I think is prevalent in a lot of gyms today of like this kind of like sexy vibe and maybe like the red lights and the idea of the meat market and like all of that comes a lot from those early men's gyms. And I should also say that like, you know, a lot of those gyms, particularly in HIV AIDS in the 1980s, like provided such an important like community environment for men, who, men in particular who were excluded from other places. I cover this one gym in Houston um, that during HIV AIDS, when there was so much homophobia in the city, they were holding like medical seminars. They had mutual aid societies. And so that was really, really important. And there's another piece of it in that period, I think that's so important too, which is that because HIV AIDS was so associated with wasting away, that actually going and pumping up and lifting and showing that you were still, you know, healthy was a way to kind of signal that you had not been afflicted. And I think really important for a lot of men's sense of self-worth and self self-preservation in that period. So um, yeah, those men's gyms were such an important origin point. And then interestingly, in that period as well, in co-ed health clubs, you know, big places like in LA, the Sports Connection, the Vertical Club in New York City, these are places that are like in movies and stuff. Um, that's where you see some of the mainstreaming of those clubs that were mostly men's spaces into kind of, um, you know, co-ed clubs. And uh, it's interesting, I interviewed a bunch of straight male instructors from the 80s and they were like literally this is the only place I was ever in a minority in my life because it's women and gay men for the most part and the expectation you talked about early on that like oh my god you're you know looking to date a woman in your early 50s you're expected to have like a six-pack a lot of that those kind of physical ideals for men came out of gay culture as well. Like, you know, when we say like, oh, you were expected to have a punch, you know who was it? Look at the fitness, the physique magazines in the 40s and 50s that were not openly for gay men, but mostly were. And it's kind of that physical ideal, which is filtered into, I think, a lot of straight, you know, male expectations too. And it's not just about like muscles. If you think about, remember, we used to talk about the metrosexual, the expectation that like, it's not quote unquote, gay to care for your hair and your skin and fashion and all of that. A lot of that is an example of um, that same sort of cultural migration, I guess. Well, the, see, that's the thing that, that we, we really don't recognize, I think, a lot in, in modern life is how much we are influenced, right? I mean, even going back into the 80s with Boy George and, and him being one of the first kind of 
even though he wasn't a formal trans, he was the first kind of gender non-binary person that was really in our popular culture and our zeitgeist. And, you know, how does that, how do we get from there to here? I mean, that's one of the things I love about speaking with you. That's one of the things I love about history, right? Is how do we get from, how do we get to where we are now and how do we evolve? One one question that pops up though, Doc, is, I mean, you and I are very biased towards more urban centers, right? Towards where, I mean, we've been in big cities. You're in New York. I've lived in DC. I, I lived in downtown San Diego. As fitness evolved, is there a difference? And what is the difference between like urban centers and, and and non-urban areas, between like the suburbs and the cities. What did you observe or what did you notice when you're going back through and, and seeing the evolution of fitness? I mean, what is it about city living that's different from a fitness lifestyle than, than other parts than being able to live in other areas? Yeah, no, that's such a great question. And I was tried really hard not to make this like purely a coastal story. Like what happens in New York and in LA and San Diego is like the whole country. It's absolutely not that. However, it is undeniable that these sites were kind of leaders. And why is that? Well, it's not because these are the centers of the world as much as many New Yorkers like to think. But I think that what you have is one, you have a concentration of a lot of people and you also have a concentration of a lot of people who are really into image <laughs> in different ways in New York and LA. But I think both of those things, both of those um, cities emphasize appearance a lot. And I think in California, which is even more of a site for sure than in New York, there's also this very long tradition of kind of experimentation around health, spirituality, and the body. And so that makes a lot of sense for why big cities in California were so important. And then in New York, you know, um, the proximity to the dance world was really, really important. Um, and I think that that created really different movement cultures in California and New York. Like in New York, you're more likely to have like a kind of hard driving aerobic studio taught by a professional dancer where there's like, you know, cocaine and like people are smoking as they're walking into class. And that's kind of the environment in California. You'd be, it was, at, I'm talking about like the seventies, eighties. Yes, you had those drugs and everything, but it'd be more likely that that person also was dabbling in yoga and there's like a juice bar. Like, you know, I'm speaking a little bit in cliches, but um, they are, they have some, some truth to them. In terms of the rest of the country, which of course is most people, so I do look at gyms in other in other spaces, and they all kind of have their like local flavor and local appeal. But one of the things that I'm most interested in, because you can't go to every town and capture like what exercise in every place, is like how did exercise spread and how did people like glom on to these practices when you know they weren't like walking distance from Jane Fonda's studio as most people weren't. And the technology story is so freaking interesting there. Like the role of one TV, like, you know, I obviously talk about Jack LaLanne's TV show in the 1950s, like spreading the idea that exercise is something you should do before there are even commercial gyms. BHS, of course, is like really, really important to that. And then more recently, we had the whole digital revolution. But one of the things that I think is so interesting is, again, resisting the idea that these like media productions that are often made in New York and LA are like the way that folks like uh, got delivered fitness. What's really interesting is how people respond and the practices they create on their own. So there's one franchise that I talk about that not too many people remember. It's called Women at Large. And um, I believe it comes out of Seattle. I now feel like I might be misspeaking, but I got it right in the book. It's definitely Pacific Northwest. And these are self-described, well, actually, I don't know if they would use this term. They are Larger women, I think they didn't use the term fat, they used the term overweight, and they 
um, saw aerobics videos. They're like, we want to do that too. They couldn't find any classes of people who looked like them. So they go and they get certified and they started this franchise business called Women at Large and they would hire bigger um instructors, they would um, welcome larger women in too. And it, that I t- look at in some detail and I draw the great work by a woman named Jenny Ellison. And it's so interesting because on the one hand, it's like super revolutionary and liberating that, you know, people who didn't look quote unquote already fit were welcomed into a fitness environment and seen as like, you belong at the gym too, and let's go do this together. But on the other hand, it's so caught up in that mentality of like, oh, you're here because like, we know we can help you become thin, right? That idea that like fat people are welcome as long as they are like, wanting to not be fat anymore. And that was definitely kind of part of it. Interestingly, they never used the word fat in the way that some people use today, like reclaiming it like queer. They would talk about like fluffy ladies, which I think is an interesting um, euphemism. But like that kind of stuff to me is super interesting. So like, yeah, LA, New York, these are like really big hotspots, but the way people reinterpret it in their own context and like create these new practices is really, really super interesting. I spend a lot of time on the Jazzercise franchise model too, which was worldwide and seeing how that looked in different places also. Well, I mean, the, the LA New York thing, Doc, it really, what bothers me and what bothers a lot of purists too is the fact that what works, what works is consistency and progressive overload and taking a little bit of time off, taking a few days off every, every number of weeks, mm-hmm. right? Nothing is really new under the sun. Yet every year, every time this year, beginning of the year, January, you get what are the latest celebrity things? What? Why are we so obsessed with that? Why is a culture always? I mean, to tie into that whole celebrity thing, what what is it about that that we chase that we use fitness to chase that whole that persona? That what what is about celebrity fitness that drives everybody else to go and get sweaty? Well, I think fitness is just sort of like the latest thing that lets people feel like, oh, you know, I'm just like them, right? Like we've had a celebrity culture for a very long time. People, we've had fashion magazines and Hollywood magazines and all that much longer than the exercise. Um, Our exercise culture has been around, but I think exercise becomes in some ways like just another thing to consume. Like, oh, I saw that celebrity coming out of SoulCycle. I want to go do that too. But I also think something that's really important and is one of the reasons that like celebrity fitness is aspirational has stuck around for so long is that like there's kind of the fantasy that like unlike a perfect face I don't know or like a five thousand dollar gown or something like that if I just work as hard as she does I could be like that too right like if I oh she does dance cardio five days a week I could do that I could look like that and so it feels accessible, I think, as something to emulate in a way that some of the more crazy things like a $20 million Mm. mansion or, you know, perfect bone structure or whatever doesn't feel. And even though we know, come on, it's like not, I mean, yes, it's more accessible than that, but like those people have private trainers and private chefs and great jeans and all the rest. But I think that that's why it continues to be so appealing. Well, how is the way on that note, how has the way that we've gotten fit changed? Like how has like from gyms to home equipment and you reference digital, but, but, but talk a little bit about that, about the evolution. And, and then what I want to do is because I'll share about where I'm working now and the reason why I'm working there, because I'll be, I'm interested to hear doc, what, what you found about where we're working out and, and how we're working out. 
Yeah. So you have definitely the evolution over time from, you know, technology evolves, TV, VHS, digital, et cetera. But also you have, you know, the evolution of like a gym in 1930 was not a comprehensible idea to most people. They think of like a gymnastics facility, most of them. Um, And then that kind of evolves. You have like sort of grubby weightlifting, like pumping iron kind of places. You also have for women, like beauty spas, basically reducing spas and slenderizing salons, which are often connected to beauty parlors. Those are those big equipment um, pieces with like the belts that like shake you. You might be wearing high heels when you're working on those. So those exist. Um, Then you have, you know, in the 19, late 1950s and 60s, you have these early um, like chain luxury health clubs like a guy named Vic Tanny you probably remember I mean you don't remember him that's like being alive but um Vic Tanny who ended up selling to Bali but he was like he came out of Muscle Beach total bodybuilder but he was like my thing is I am going to make luxurious clubs I'm going to make the gym luxury and affluent and so you have that then you have you know small studios which are pretty gritty even though like celebrities went there in the 80s then the big clubs when kind of we came on the scene you know the like health clubs you have studio fitness again but i think that um one thing oh my gosh i forgot i was uh, was gonna say how we exercise over time oh yeah all of those things are are really important and it's really important to realize actually that the trends change much faster than the science we haven't actually had that many massive revolutions in what is considered exercise one that is very very important that i want to point out to though is the discovery of what we think of as cardio and the fact that 1968 this guy kenneth cooper writes this book that's called aerobics which is confusing because it's before what we think of as like Jane Fonda aerobics, right? But it's basically offering this like earth shattering discovery, which is, oh, you think the guy who pumps iron and has big biceps is fit? Nah, I put them all on treadmills and did these stress tests. And actually the guy who just bikes two miles to work there and back every day, or the one who goes for a walk every day, those are the people who are fit. And therefore everybody should be doing this kind of um, what he called aerobic exercise. That is freaking game changing. And it's so game changing for all the reasons now looking back, you can see, right? Jogging, triathlons, dance cardio, like all of these things expand the idea of who should exercise and what exercise is. Then, you know, you have like in the 90s, strength training comes back in. Like we have evolution, but there aren't that many seismic changes in exercise science. The trends change much much faster. And I think that's basically because we have like a consumer marketplace. So you've always got to like sell the new thing, right? Well, what changed significantly after the year 2000, and I noticed this in the research in my book on exercise and aging, was that it, that after about 2004, 2005, there's been substantially more research on high-intensity exercise in the context of the average person, right? Because before the early mm-hmm. 2000s, the only reason – there were one or two studies that I found that, that were a little bit different, but primarily the only reason why high-intensity exercise was studied – was for athletes, was specifically for athletes. How do we get our athletes faster? How do we get our athletes improve their capacity? So it's been interesting because normally I would say that 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 you get the, the market drives the science, meaning people start doing the thing in the marketplace and the science tries to understand it. But we've also had a little bit of the science driving the market, you know, because as we learn more, it gets implemented. Now we're getting ready to wrap up because I know you got a hard out coming up. One of the things I want to look at is have you describe, let's look back about the last 30 years. And, and mm-hmm. number one, I know you've written about this quite a bit, but number two, this kind of covers our personal experience within the industry 
and what and you know kind of you and I being involved with it. But how would you classify like the various trends over the last thirty years? Meaning from gym to studio to hit and all that. How would, would you describe? How would you describe the last? And where are we now? What era are we in now? Would you just how would you describe the era that we were the twenty twenty three presents us? Right. So in the last thirty years, so that takes us back to like the early nineteen nineties, right? And I would say that a really important evolution that happens in that period is that. You go from this like hard driving aerobics culture, um, which, you know, 22 million people did aerobics in the mid 1980s at its peak, which is a lot of people. You evolve from that into a fitness culture that integrates what had before been kind of counterculture, which is basically like yoga and other kind of mind body pursuits. And most people who study that tend to look at the way that like, gym culture affected and usually they say corrupted yoga like this like very narrow-minded like workout mentality corrupted the spiritual practice what i think actually happened just as importantly is that this spiritual practice actually kind of shaped and elevated the way we talk about and experience exercise people went from talking about like an instructor and going to thin their thighs to being like, I have a practice. I'm going to see my guru. I feel enlightened. Like all of this kind of more elevated talk about exercise, I think it kind of described what a lot of people felt already because there are already these articles like in the 80s that are like, I can't explain it, but I get this incredible high when I go to this aerobics class and I'm canceling appointments with my therapist, you know, in order to do this and what's going on here. Once yoga kind of starts to shape fitness culture, a lot more, you start to have people be like, yeah, exercise is a crucial part of well-being. So I think that's super important. That gets a real boost after 9-11. After 9-11, when the world is so uncertain, we lived through this, remember it intimately as young adults, like so much is uncertain around you. Everything is freaking dangerous. You know what you have some control over, it seems, your own physical body and wellness. And so one of the things I write about in the book is like, that spawns, I would say, two apparently different but very linked exercise sensibilities. One, you have the kind of mind-body wellness healing thing that you see at bar studios and Pilates studios and is often typed like actually very feminine. Then you see CrossFit takes off in this enormous way. CrossFit, to me, I think of it, and other people have described it this way, it's like body is bunker, right? You don't know what the hell is going to happen. So you better train for functional fitness, like a fireman, a policeman, a first responder, so you can like carry your family out on your back if you need to, right? Those two things to me are so linked and they really take off in that period. And then I think we have at least two other chapters. One after the um, financial crash, uh, financial crisis of 2008, 2009, this whole theme we talked about of like fitness is labor, but also leisure comes into play. That's also about when social media is really taking off. So all of a sudden you have all these opportunities to like show off your life, but it's actually really distasteful to show off if you can afford them kind of fancy things and spending. What is more exciting or more, I think, socially acceptable to people with even like a grain of self-awareness to show off that you're working hard on your health because that's virtuous. And so that's when you have all of this like performance of fitness that people are showing off because capitalism, that's also, remember, the rise of the boutique boom. And so to me, like that's so perfect. The boutique fitness boom, I don't mean perfect, it's so great, but it like fits in perfectly. The boutique fitness boom so is the thing that brings all that together in that moment, right? It's kind of like, it's not as expensive as buying like a Maserati, obviously, although do it enough and maybe it is, but it's kind of like, it is luxury. So you can like show off and conspicuously consume, but it's virtuous in, in pursuit of health. And all those studios are very, 
very dis, um, very precisely designed to be for show, right? You have the logos and the colors, like you know where you are when you take a picture at Barry's boot camp. Like it's clear, right? So that I think is super important. And then the last phase, which hopefully is not end of days for us or for exercise, but I think most recently something that we're really in. Um, obviously, the pandemic accelerated so much of the digitization, the digital world of fitness. And I don't think any of that's going away. But I do think we're in this period right now where we've almost had like an elimination diet around fitness you took out everything and now you add things back and it's like what's meaningful to me like yeah I don't know that's how I always think about it and so I think you know that that's going to mean different things to different people but something that I do see happening is like you know home fitness can be very 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 convenient and people have invested in setups and stuff so I kind of imagine that if we're going to make overarching claims like exercise has never been more important we know preventative health is crucial around COVID comorbidities and other things. But I imagine that we're going to see people both keep like an at-home practice for exercise, but also destination fitness, whether that means driving 10 miles or going away to run a half marathon or just doing something outside of your house with your friends. I see people putting value on that in like a really renewed way that we maybe didn't have when we were on autopilot, going to the same club after work every day. So I imagine that kind of destination fitness, even if it's at home, I'm like in your house, in your like uh, community, or if it's like really making travel out of it, I imagine that that's going to coexist with like a persistent home fitness thing. I, Those no, are my predictions. But no, I, I agree. And I, I like the way you contextualize all that. And what's funny is I really hadn't put 9-11 and, and the emergency CrossFit kind of, I hadn't sequenced together like that. And I lived through both. I mean, I was the hardest class I ever taught in my life, Doc was Thursday, September 13th at 7 a.m. sports conditioning because because obviously everything, we, we shut the clubs down on Tuesday, September 11th. I was in downtown D.C. I was in a gym three and a half blocks from the White House. I was right off of Connecticut and uh, Connecticut and uh, M Street, Connecticut, right at 1211 Connecticut Avenue when when everything went down on September 11th. And so we started again. Everything was closed on, on Wednesday the 12th, and we picked up again on Thursday the 13th. So that 7 a.m. sports conditioning and that Friday 5.30 evening, 5.30 uh, p.m. spinning at the Sports Club LA, the high-end club, were the two hardest because the, the energy, there was zero, everybody was so overwhelmed that having to try to create positive energy in that environment was the toughest challenge I've ever had. But I'd never sequence, I'd never put that together. But getting ready to, to wrap it up here, because what yeah. I where, where I'm working now, we haven't talked in a while. For years, fitness was seen as luxury, right? I mean, the, the clubs I worked for in the yeah. mid 2000s, 2006, 2007, 2008, it was a Reebok Sports Club in New York. It was the Upper East Side. It was it was um, Reebok Sports Club, or sorry, Sports Club LA, Upper East Side, the original Vertical Club that you probably referenced in, in the book. But those were ultimate luxury. I mean, we had we were memberships at $200, $250 a month. You know, at our club in, in, in Boston, Doc, we had, I would come out in the morning, there'd be two or three Bentleys out front. And in those clubs, those were health clubs in four seasons and in, in Ritz Carlton hotels. That was what the typical health club was back in the in the 80s and 90s. It was seen as a luxury. The company I'm working for now, we're on the opposite side of that. We are, I don't got my the strip malls that we're in. We have wig stores, we have smoke shops, we have Subway sandwich franchises. We are in what I call low to middle income areas. But what we are doing is we are making fitness more accessible. That's why I'm here. Because what we're doing mm-hmm. is we are a full service health club. We have we have swimming pools, we have basketball courts, we have sauna, we have everything. We are a full service health club that we sell between $12 and $32 a month. 
You know, you can buy towel service for extra. You can pay for babysitting for extra. But if you want to join just one of our locations and not do group fitness, if you want, if you're just, you know, 22 something, 20 year old person, you want to join one of our locations and just work out. It's about $14, $15 a month to get you through wow. the door. So we are making fitness extremely accessible and not just that, but this is high quality doc. We have high quality equipment in there. And so really this is what has me excited about it is we have a great equity group. We have a great ownership group behind mm-hmm. us because we didn't even touch. We don't have time to touch into because the last five years, I'd say going back 10 years, you have the equity emergence in our industry because after yeah. the financial crisis, and this is one thing that you, I'm sure you don't go into. I mean, I skimmed the book, honestly, but you and I have had the conversations because from 2009 on, there's been a boom of equity looking at fitness because yeah. what we saw in 08, 09 was that people downsized their fitness spend per month, but they didn't cancel it. it, it and so my evolution, yeah. Doc, and we'll wrap up the kind because I, I do want to ask one more question, but my personal evolution was in the 2000s, I was a personal trainer. In late 2000s, throughout the 2010s, I focused on education and traveling around the world, educating people. Now in my seat in the 2020, I'm taking all that experience and I'm teamed up with an equity group and we're looking at doing our, our model is sound. We have the right equipment. And my job is I'm trying to create a system for taking somebody who is working at Starbucks or working at Target or working at a TGI Fridays. How do we hire that person, give them the basic competency to be good on a fitness floor and so they can start their career and progress their career? Because we have such a high mm-hmm. turnover. What I don't want to do is have somebody spend four years in college and come work for us and and bomb, bomb out and think the entire industry is crap. So I'm right. really, from my seat, my background is a labor, is economist and government. I'm trying to apply all this knowledge now. So I've looked at the last 20 years of my career has been all education for here. Because what I'm trying to do is create a system for how do we turn out competent professionals to start with. If they want to stay in our industry, boom, they can go on and they get all kinds of continuing education. But that's really where that. So I'm kind of excited because right now we have we have good teams. We I mean, we just had our we're recording this at the beginning of February. We crushed our January numbers. So for anybody that asks whether or not people are back from COVID, I don't care what your gym is doing. And I know there are companies <laughs> doing layoffs. I know places are shutting their doors. This is a competitive rugby player than me. And I love that. Yo, I'm going to bump yeah. up over you. I'm going to put my boots on you. I'm going to put you in the ground. I'm going to keep going forward. So all that to say, the reason why I'm bringing but the reason why I'm bringing that up is reason why I'm at this company is we're changing the model for how we do it. And we're doing some really cool things. Now, the last question to ask, Doc, and this is kind of a personal question because it applies to both of us, but how much do you think, how much of the whole aging and maturation process, we're, we're kind of in that first generation of diehard fitness consumers. And these are people who are now between maybe they're their early to mid forties and they're probably early to mid sixties. I mean, would you agree with me on that? That that's like people that, I mean, that, that came online. How do you think that maturation of this first generation of diehard fitness consumers, how is that? And this is what we'll finish on. How is that maturation influencing industry today? Well, I think that like we've seen in our lifetime, a huge shift in who exercise is considered appropriate for largely around age, right? Like if you look at when we were kids, I mean, there's that meme that like some of the golden girls were the same age as Shakira and J-Lo performing at the Super Bowl, like when they were the golden girls. To me, that's very related to how we think about age. And I think there's something freaking awesome about that, that like when we were little kids, the kind of dominant images of who should go to the gym were people who like 
were already hot, who already had six pack abs, who were maybe 35 years old. Like, and now you don't see that actually, as you know, like a huge demographic in gym goers, and especially the people who spend a lot at the gym are people over 55 because they're buying the trainer. They're going to the, you know, the more expensive places, et cetera. Not everyone, obviously, but those who can afford it. I think that's freaking awesome in a lot of ways. I do think, you know, I'm always a little bit, um, you know, chastened in my optimism on that by this passage in the book Natural Causes by Barbara Ehrenreich, who has sadly since passed. But she died, I think it was, she was in her 70s. But she was like, you know, I retired from like a life of like wage earning labor. And I kind of want to chill out. And basically, my friends of my social class, she's a, you know, had a PhD and all that are like, oh, no, now you have a full time job, you go to the gym every day. And she's like, wait, what? <laughs> like, my grandmother, like lay around smoking cigarettes and reading magazines, like, I want to do that. And so I do think we should always balance our like enthusiasm, you and I like, love and live to exercise with like, God, is this becoming a pressure, you know, or, um, or not. Okay. So that I think is one interesting dimension. It will be very interesting to see Gen Z and how they respond to this. Like in some ways, I think for them, exercise culture is very normative. Like they've grown up with parents who, um, again, very social class mediated, still 80% of Americans don't, but they've seen exercise as part of the culture all around them. I wonder, is that just going to be part of something that they do and that they think is normal? Or is there going to be a rejection? I don't have a fully formed analysis of this yet, but I do sometimes wonder if like all of this enthusiasm now for like plastic surgery, for the weight loss injectables, for all that kind of stuff might be a little bit of a reaction to the kind of like fitness, workout, be disciplined, get on the treadmill, like sensibility of, as you put it, our generation of like diehard fitness enthusiasts. So I'm not quite sure where it's going to go, but um, we'll see. Well, and, and so what's next for you, Doc? I mean, I know you got a couple of things. You got a podcast that you're doing. You had that killer. And I want to say, I mean, I haven't mentioned this yet, but for anybody that wants a killer review of early 80s at Los Angeles, what was the podcast that you released? What was it, two years ago now? And I'm sure yeah, you, two people years can ago. still find it. Let's, 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 let's just highlight Thank that because I loved it. And it was a great, I thought it was a phenomenal Thanks. series, absolutely phenomenal series. Yeah, that was really fun. So that podcast series is called Welcome to Your Fantasy. It's nine episodes and it is about the Chippendales phenomenon. And yes, there's some gym stuff in there. There's also a murder. Also, I just got to put this out there. If you're like, oh yeah, wasn't there like a Hulu show about that and all this? We were there first, people. So go listen to the podcast. Um, But yeah, so that is, I'm still very proud of that. What am I working on next? Well, I can't say in too much detail, but I um, have a documentary that is very related to some of the topics in the book that I will um, hopefully, if we move forward on it, that I'll be um, executive producing. Um, So that's like a really exciting way to be doing historical storytelling about fitness, but in a different form. Um, There are a few podcast ideas I have kind of bouncing around. I am really excited about a new book concept I'm batting around with my podcast co-host, a different podcast, past, present, Neil J. Young, and we want to write a new history of the Hamptons, um, which will take some of these themes around luxury and leisure and work and all the rest. So hopefully I'll have more intelligent things to say about that the next time we talk. But yeah, excited. Lots of fun stuff to come. Because you see that that's aspirational, right? I mean, that ties into the aspirational, what we want to be and who we want to do. So where's the best place for people to track down? Obviously, Fit Nation is available anywhere you can buy a book. If people want to find out more about your podcast, more about what you're doing, Doc, where can they track you down? 
Yeah. So, um, well, Twitter doesn't really work anymore. So definitely find me on Instagram (laughs) (laughs) at Natalia Petrozella. I am on Twitter. I try to tweet, but like three people. Now you say it, I haven't seen you in a while. Normally, normally you and I throw, we'll throw tweets back and forth once or twice. I mean, every, every so often. I know. Now you say it, I see all kinds of right wing nut jobs in my feed, but you're the one I want to see. I don't want to see them. Likewise, I see like three people and no one seems to see me either, but come see me deliberately seek me out. I'm still there. I try to tweet valiantly, but yeah, Instagram and Twitter is good. I'm trying to use LinkedIn. My website's Natalia Petrozella, but definitely for a more eloquent rendering of everything we discussed, go get Fit Nation. It's on sale everywhere now. We're already in our second printing. It already went through the first one. So that's really exciting. Whoa, that is super exciting. Well, Doc, thank you for your time. And we'll be in touch before too terribly long. Again, I could geek out on that all day long. And, And I really, she's running around. She's doing a lot of press for this book. It really is a lot of fun. And believe it or not, Dr. Petrozella and I still have not met in person. Uh, I think that's our fifth or sixth podcast interview we've recorded, and yet, for some reason, our paths have never crossed in 3D. Fascinating conversation. I'm a big fan of hers. I'm a big fan of history. And and guys, I'm actually going to jump right into this. I am pressing pause on the podcast for a while. Um, As you heard me talk about with her, I've been really busy at work. I love what I do. I'm educating personal trainers. We are growing like gangbusters. This year, I'm recording this in February of 2023. I'm going to be traveling to all. We just opened our 70th health club in our sixth market. Um, By the time this goes live, I'm not sure what the announcement will be, uh, but we're acquiring a few more health clubs in another market. I am going to be walking in the door of all of our health clubs this year. So I am going to be very busy at work uh, doing fitnessy things, which I love. So I'm changing the format of All About Fitness rather than trying to pump out three or four episodes a month that was causing me a lot of stress trying to schedule that and get all those interviews in. I'm pressing pause on the weekly interviews and instead I'm going to be recording a couple different series. So over the next few months, I am going to be recording interviews. However, I am not going to be releasing them as series, uh, release them as I go. I'll probably be recording a number of interviews, then release all the interviews at once or release them over a quarter of weeks as a series. So I got a couple really cool series I'm working on. I'm not going to share the names yet. I'm just going to change the format up a bit just to match my schedule. So All About Fitness is not going away. Um, However, I am changing the format up of it a little bit. And I couldn't imagine anybody better to to make that announcement with than uh, with Dr. Petrozella. So really enjoyed this conversation with her. Hey, I love fitness. I get, to, I get to have a job where I get to have a major influence on how we do fitness in this country, and I absolutely love that. And so that is my primary focus. I will continue recording interviews in the background, and uh, when I release this next series, it's going to be a whole series of interviews. It's going to be a good one, and I'm really, really looking forward to that. As always, you can reach out to me, Pete, at PeteMcCallFitness.com. That's Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. And thanks for stopping by. And I do look for I do look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.